Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, two great guests today, uh, Derek and Beverly Jobert. Uh, Derek is a uh, National Geographic explorer at large, a conservationist, wildlife filmmaker, and author. He's also the founder and CEO and chairman of Great Plains Conservation. Is an organization that manages uh, several wildlife reserves in Kenya, Botswana, and Zimbabwe. Um, they're going to be part of a new special on National Geographic coming out on Earth Day called Born Wild, The Next Generation. And uh, we'll talk about that and about their work. So, Derek and Beverly, thanks for coming. How are you doing? No, we're great. Thank you very much. And just to update you, uh, Beverly is also an explorer at large. And in fact, um, carries 90% of the creative burden and everything we do. In fact, generally, I find myself performing the role of butler or valet in the shadow <laughs> of Beverly. Okay, well, excellent. Okay, God. <laughs> so uh, how long have both of you um, been involved in conservation? Um, you know, Richard, it's been uh, okay. close to four decades. Um, so about 40 years. And Derek and I started, we met at high school, fell madly in love. We were kindred spirits in so many ways. But kindred spirits not only in, you know, feeling like uh, we were soulmates, but also in our commitment to the planet. We always knew that we wanted to make um, a difference in areas that we felt um, there were atrocities happening. We first of all started as explorers, um, but our own kind of explorers, um, you know, going out into the field and uh, really getting to understand Africa, the real Africa, the wild Africa, and but later became National Geographic explorers, explorers at large. Uh, and so that was the start of our career in conservation. I think as well it was us falling in love and us falling in love with the continent of Africa and going out and trying to rediscover ourselves or discover ourselves. We were very young. Um, and, then, um, and then falling deeply and profoundly in love with uh, this continent that we were both born on. And right. so began the journey. Yeah, I've noticed for myself, you know, I'm not, I'm in my 40s, but I noticed um, when I'm around nature, even something simple, I just I feel calmer, I feel better. Even if I'm just seeing, let's say, a, you know, a raccoon running around on the road, whatever it is. I mean, what you guys have seen, obviously, is I'm sure it's amazing. But what what draws you to nature? Like, how do you guys feel when you're, you know, in your normal city life versus, let's say, out in the bush? Yeah. So we don't really have a normal city life, so we're out in the bush most of the time. But the what you're responding to there is is this unbelievable um, communion in many ways where... Um, the raccoon running down the road and, and not being in fear of you and a leopard coming up to us and leaning against the side of the vehicle is this a connection and, and trust 
between us. And I think more and more uh, the human psyche strives for expressions of trust and and particularly it's uh, enriching when it's across the species line. And so I think sitting amongst elephants and listening to them rumble and, and watching the babies come up to the vehicle um, is, the, is the epitome of that expression of trust. You know, we, we've done so much harm to them, and yet they still believe in us. But definitely nature is a form of um, calming in so many ways. And it is soul food for me. I find it very hard to be in cities. And in fact, uh, we had to take um, an unselfish um, form of where we were going to be in lockdown. And so we in lockdown in the city purely uh, so that we could be, you know, more connected to the world, be able to have these kind of discussions, whereas we so far, um, far um, would have preferred being in our bush camp um, amongst nature. But we needed to be close to to um, being able to organize, you know, conservation. We knew if we were being selfish and out there, um, it would have just been for ourselves and not for the better good of the environment. So I know this will probably be hard to encapsulate, but um, are there any particular experiences you guys have had over the years that were, I don't know, they just stood out amongst other experiences and why? Maybe, you know, thoughts of one or two of them. You know, we've had remarkable ones. And I know um, with Born Wild, the next generation is really on lions and and the new uh, cubs. Uh, so, the, so the next generation. And we've had some remarkable ones. I can go all the way back to the 80s when there was a lioness we called Scarleg. And uh, she had this huge scar on her leg that never, ever healed. Uh, but obviously her immune system allowed her to continue. And she had this incredible um, family of little cubs and how she was so altruistic towards them and just this incredible bonding uh, that she had with them. And, you know, I think it's really shown us that each individual uh, predator that we're working with, whether it's lions or, or leopards or cheetah, they have individual characters and they truly are um, individual in a way that uh, we need to be, be protecting these species. We don't know everything about them at all. But her, her biggest thing is even though she was injured, she was... Uh, remarkable in how she would protect them against a whole clan of hyenas, hyenas that tried to take over over her carcass. And it happened at um, some ungodly hour at night. We used to do a huge amount of nocturnal work and um, the, the hyena clan came in. And how she defended her little cubs and made sure that she got them to safety first. And then she, you know, attacked the hyenas. But there's so many. Um, Another one we've had is with um, a leopard that we called Lachadema, and we worked with her for three years. Um, for me, uh, there was a moment that uh, was quite amazing. Again, like Beverly, there are many, many moments here, but um, we got called out to an emergency situation uh, on the Chobe River, and somebody had driven past a herd, through a herd of elephants, and uh, they panicked. It was bad human behavior. And the herd all ran away. But in their running away, they trampled on a baby elephant and, and got this elephant stuck in the mud. And we, we went in there. We generally do not intervene. So if we find a, 
an elephant or leopard or lion or whatever it is stuck in the mud anywhere. We don't interfere if it's if it's natural, but in this case it wasn't. And so we we went in there and waded in up to our armpits in the mud to try and get this baby out and used a winch and used a, everything we could to get this little baby elephant out. But what was notable about it is that through this entire process, the mother came back and charged us and tried to kill us. Um, but we did manage to get the baby out. There was a most magical moment after that. And that's what I was talking about a little earlier on, about trust, where we reunited the, the muddy baby with her mother. And we were all exhausted and, and then went about collecting our tools and the winch and so on. We were walking within two or three paces of this mother and baby. They had not run off, but they totally accepted the fact that we were there to help. And, and for me, that was magical in, in that it broke the normal confines of the human-animal relationship um, based on understanding. And so in many ways, I've sort of strived to recreate that or re, rebuild that, that um, empathy and trust and dignity and respect and replicate it over and over and over in, throughout our lives. But that was a rare one. Well, that's great. So what is your uh, association with National Geographic uh, allowed you to do that you couldn't do otherwise? Oh, gosh, I think that um, being associated with any, any great institution that's, that's been in place for over 130 years is, uh, is humbling. Um, no, I think that our association with the National Geographic goes back at least 130 years in my case. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's all about authenticity and integrity and about sharing of experiences, storytelling, and, and, and really, I think the National Geographic Society has, has urged us to be better versions of ourselves. Um, and so there's that internal journey that we've walked with the National Geographic Society. But, of course, uh, externally, if you walk into a room with a National Geographic business card and you want to film a secret ivory um, stash, you get in. If, if you, you, of course, it stands for that integrity. And so it's certainly it's been a wonderful relationship for us. Um, and in many ways, an untethered one, and that that we walk the, these paths together rather than we don't work for National Geographic, obviously, as explorers. And they respect the fact that we are explorers and we're going to disappear for a year or two at a time. Yeah, what, what do you, I mean, what has your schedule been throughout the, I don't know, the past decades? I mean, what are you spending your time on throughout the year? Like, do you have certain missions that you want to go to certain places and just scout out what's going on or like what do you do as an explorer so you know as an explorer um, Derek and I uh, became explorers through our creative artists filmmakers but also on our conservation work and how we work very closely with governments throughout Africa as well as communities so we're always representing conservation the environment and 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 representing the you know the geographic and being ambassadors for the the geographic at the same time so on a daily basis um, when we've got a film um, out in the field we'll be out in the field we'll be um, up at four in the morning and uh, and out there for at least 14 hours a day 
um, waiting, watching the subject, whether it's lions, leopards, uh, cheetah, or elephants, or even rhinos. Uh, lately, we've got quite involved with uh, protecting rhinos. And, um, and so that would be the, our daily activity. Uh, we'd arrive back um, in camp totally exhausted, but we'd have to download all the footage, uh, charge all the batteries, and get supplies for the next day. And we would follow that routine. And it would be over and over for months at a time. Uh, we would come back into the city purely to start the edit phase and to be able to do a lot of the conservation work. Um, and that would be in short bouts of maybe a week and we'd be back in the field. And that really wow. is our daily lives. Um, it's exciting, uh, it's exhausting, um, you know, and it can be dangerous, but um, that's really what drives us. And it, what drives us is these, trying to look after these last remaining pristine areas. Um, if you have a look at the biomass on our planet, uh, there's um, a figure that is 36% uh, is, uh, is uh, human, 60 uh, percent is livestock, and only four percent is wildlife, and that's really what drives us on a daily basis. That four percent, Derek and I are trying to protect those last remaining pristine areas on the planet, and of course the top predators. Um, have, have a huge part to play in protecting these areas. And that's why we started the Big Cat Initiative about 12 years ago now at National Geographic. And that's really to look at all the, the big um, super predators on sort of on the African continent. So, yeah, I think also the, um, you know, the world's changing. And I think that uh, embedded within your, your question there and Bevy's answer is, is the meaning of exploration. Um, and it is interesting. I think that we've lived our lives on the edge. Um, we've had a number of mishaps uh, that I've no doubt we'll get into a little later on. But um, the, I think living on the edge or, or embracing the unknown has defined our lives. And um, in the past, that would have been that waking up at four in the morning and going out and following lions and dangerous predators or elephants. Um, the world has changed. And I would have said a few years ago that uh, I wanted to go to the moon or uh, I still believe that Everest was, is within my grasp. Um, today, under lockdown, a little sneak out the gate and going for a run in the street is, is exploring and adventurous. Um, and so I think that this, this version of exploration and what we do is in, in as many ways a mind game as it is a physical journey. Okay. Well, how have you observed things changing since you've been at this for, for 40 years? Has it been just a slow change where areas have been uh, taken over by humans or have there been dramatic shifts? Like, what does it look like to you over time? So sporadic, I think, in, in our case. So we've seen Africa change dramatically. Uh, I think that some of that is because of a, a steady march of, of human population growth. Um, if we're approaching 8 billion people by 2050, that has to have an impact on, on all e ecosystems around the world. Africa, um, more so than any others. There's a billion head of cattle in East, of livestock in East Africa now. And, uh, and that has a real impact on, on wild ecosystems. Um, there's, uh, there's been in our lifetimes 
uh, a massive growth in in what people are calling wet markets now in China. We, there was no such thing as a wet market that we knew about um, 40 years ago. And so to see that a wet market or something coming out of a wet market could, could collapse the entire global economy uh, is indicative of the scale of, and the immediacy of the change that we, that we see. Um, in Africa, we've seen an increase in poaching and then, you know, rhinos almost went extinct and then got built up again and, and are now under siege again. Um, I would I would certainly put in a, a footnote here about climate change, and I think that as the climate changes, uh, no matter who, who we we label as being responsible for that, there is climate change, um, and and that's affecting a whole lot of things. And so we're seeing that seasons are changing, the length of day is changing, and and as the length of day changes, the the uh, seed banks that grow grasses are expecting to find a day as they come out of a certain length is not there. And so everything changes. Now, I think that the great ecosystems and savannah systems of Africa thrive on change, but natural change, not imposed on them change, like right. we as humans are so good at doing. And so I'm, I'm really worried about what this particular um, thrust of, of uh, change upon us is going to do. So as coronavirus spreads through the world, um, you know, while coming back to the first point, which is, you know, 8 billion people, I think that people will die. Um, not a large percentage of the world's population will die, but people will die, and that's terribly sad. But the impact, the economic impact of that will shut down conservation in, in Africa, and we've already seen the impact of this, and we'll, we'll stimulate poaching in Africa. And uh, if we get out of this with 50% um, of, the, of the wildlife that we came into it with, I'd consider us very, very lucky. Really? Do you, you think yeah. it's going to accelerate poaching dramatically? Why? We've already seen an acceleration in poaching. Um, just in Botswana, for example, two years ago, for other reasons, there was one rhino killed, then 30 rhinos last year, 31 rhinos this year already. Um, so that's exponential increase in, in wildlife poaching. Um, and there's bushmeat. The minute you put uh, communities and, and human population under stress, where where nobody knows where their next meal is going to come from, uh, they will turn to, to the wild ecosystems to find that. And, of course, in certain more commercial circumstances, they'll start feeding back into those Chinese wet markets where this whole problem apparently started. It's, so, yeah, it's a problem. It certainly is troubling. As a global recession and fear-based, you know, people will not support the environment. And that's what we're going to see um, in the communities. And that's what we're going to see globally. Everybody's going to be fearful, of, you know, and, and worry about their own survival. So I think what we need to do through this time is work out how we're going to um, change policies. Uh, we've already seen that by stopping and everybody, um, you know, being in a lockdown form, uh, the environment has actually got better, which is the irony, you know, of this time. Um, the, the air is cleaner, pollution is less, 
and and you know it's also is um, alleviating the, go, the the global heating that we we're facing. So what I see is that um, in our work we actually have to be more effective through this time through our messaging. We have to speak out to people, and we all need to be the change. We need to be talking to governments and hope that the way forward, because we need to look at the way forward. Um, we don't want to just go back to normal where we were. Um, six weeks ago or, or two months ago, we actually want to look at, at the pressing issues that are facing us. And climate change is equally as pressing as the coronavirus is right now. And um, if we wipe out all of nature, we will certainly be doomed on this planet. We need nature. Nature is vitally important um, to us. And nature, uh, you know, these last pristine areas that Derek and I film and are working in Africa to protect are some of the last pristine areas that have true forests, you know, giving us oxygen, um, oceans that aren't polluted. And that's really what we all need to be doing, is stopping the abuse to the planet. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd just add to that, and now we sort of hijacked your interview, sorry Richard, but the... That's okay. Um, the... <laughs> The notion that this is an anomaly and we'll return to no normal is wrong. Um, and this is a tremendous opportunity to, to reassess and redefine our relationship with nature. Um, and if we go back to our relationship with nature pre-coronavirus, uh, that will be a a travesty and a wasted opportunity. Many people would have died for nothing. Many um, businesses would have gone bankrupt for nothing. Many countries, economies, cultures, communities will have suffered for nothing. So we have to turn this into a moment of reflection um, where we say, and there's a great Latin saying, which is homo nosce, um, which is man know thyself. Um, we need to know ourselves at this moment and we need to redefine our relationship with nature. Otherwise, this has been a wasted opportunity. Well, it's a small idea I've been thinking about, but you know, I'll give it to you guys because maybe you can put it forth. But you know, at, at the very least for next year, it, it might be good to uh, couple maybe a world stay-at-home day with Earth Day. You know, mm. Give the Earth a break for one day, stay at home, mm. You know, to honor what's happened, just at the very least. So, you know, it's one idea. Absolutely, Richard. I think um, that's a great idea. And I think Earth Day, um, you know, started 50 years ago, and here we are 50 years later. And we already 50 years ago knew that we were on a trajectory towards. Um, uh, the, the wrong form of how to protect the planet. And here we are today, and look where we are. The 50th anniversary, this is profound, that we are all in lockdown because we have abused our planet um, in so many ways, and we're struggling for our own survival. So I would say that we need to do a lot more than that. Uh, we really should be celebrating every single day as Earth Day, and every single day we should be giving back to our host. Um, we being nurtured on this planet, we should be nurturing our planet in so many ways. And there are profound ways that we can do it. We can work with communities that are poverty-stricken and, and, and that are having to you know, use the environment and these last pristine areas 
and we can help them be part of the conservation message and how to protect these areas. But at the same time, the most important thing is that governments need to change policies. We see that we can affect the climate global warming by these last two months of going into a shutdown period. But coming out of it, I'm already hearing that China is going to be burning fossil fuels at an alarming rate. And so will other countries to try and catch up what they've lost. And that is the wrong take on what um, we've all learned through this period. What we've learned is that we need to be better. We need to change our ways. We need to look at greener solutions. Uh, We need to clean our oceans. And um, hopefully we won't be going into another pandemic if we do that. And that's it. Why try and reset the clock to what was bad before? Let's, um, Let's get better from this. I agree. You know, it's I guess nature is biting us, you know, for uh, for what's going on here. It's uh, we've we've teased well, it, and tormented it, and now it's bitten us. And, you know, we have to say okay, okay, and respect it more. So I think if we buy into the fact and the notion that that nature is benign and pristine and perfect, and um, everything that that I've spent my entire life believing in. Um, in that it is pure, the ultimate purity, actually. Um, the issues that we've had so far have been that uh, we're not benign, and we're aggressive, we're malignant, we're, we're beating the hell out of this, this planet, nature. Um, I, don't, I don't think nature takes on that similar or parallel character. I don't think nature's biting us back. I think that um, the things that we've imposed into nature are snapping back at us now. But ultimately, you know, I, I think that we have to believe in the purity of nature and that it's not doing bad things to us. I think that, uh, that we're doing bad things to ourselves against this canvas of pristine nature. Um, and we have to be very careful about that. And I, and I state that only because there's now this discussion going on about the fact that um, this all evolved because um, of the overlap between, as, as did Ebola, the overlap between humans and, and, and forests and, and the, the, the animals within the forest. Um, and I think part of that, that discussion is right. I think there should be um, places for forests and we should not go into it. But the, but the pushback, and, and we're, we are the most creative species on the planet, the pushback is that some of us then say, oh, well, therefore we should wipe out the forest so there's no interaction between nature and us, and we completely dominate the planet. Um, and I think that's the wrong answer. I think that my biggest hope for... Um, our emergence as an evolved species out of corona and other pandemics is that we we find the harmony in nature and we find that balance. Um, we need to find that um, physiologically and we need to find it spiritually and emotionally. Um, and without that, we are a lost ape on this planet. Um, and we need to we need to be better 
And we need to understand our role here better. Herman Noske, We cannot come out of this demonizing nature. Uh, if we demonize nature, we truly are lost. I agree, yeah. Well, it, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, and, and I am seeing it is amazing, the power of governments. I mean, look what they've done to everyone in the world right now. So they have the power to do good for the world and for people. If they have the right policies, and this shows it. Absolutely, you're so right. And so that's why we feel that why can't we tackle the climate change issue? We've known about it for more than 50 years. And so we need to get on top of it. Now's the time that we can see that changing policies, moving towards green solutions um, is so doable. Uh, we've got to forget about, you know, being greedy individuals and, and make money out of the earth by using the fossil fuels or whatever, you know, the, the gases. We've got to now look at how we're harming the planet and what we can do to repair the planet. And so the, the thing that I would say to you there, Richard, is yes, um, um, if governments step up, this is a fantastic thing, but governments are run by people. Um, and there are two flags of caution within this. And one is um, governments that declare states of emergencies may be doing it for the right reason, and others may be doing it to serve the people in leadership of government, to give them extraordinary powers. Um, oh, I totally agree. It's a, it's a power grab <laughs> worldwide. Oh, yeah. I agree. And so we have to be very careful because I think emergencies like this, world wars, and this is the equivalent of a world war without an obvious enemy, um, uh, give extraordinary powers to government, but also create a, a massive central governmental dependency that seeps into our culture. We look to government to guide us, to inform us, to even fund businesses that are going out of out of you know out of business, um, and I think uh, I think that's problematic. I think that 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 steals from our power in many ways to to be creative and to think and to and to be smart about uh, this this engagement that I'm talking about with with the planet. If we look only to leaders of governments to guide for example, our relationship with the planet, uh, we will be lost. I mean, those leaders, it's too big a burden on those leaders to tell us how to engage with the planet. They've got other things on their plate. Uh, we have to define that ourselves, not just collectively, but individually. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, with my own experience of living in the U.S., I mean, most people are just not in contact with nature very much at all. You know, now they are. I, I see when I drive around, you know, People walking on the street, people going out with their kids and biking. I mean, there's still not nearly as many people as there would be. But, uh, yeah, most people's daily existence is not like your guys' existence at all. It's very, very different. And I don't know how people are supposed to realize uh, that they're part of nature. You know, it's, it's a tough thing. Well, I think that's what we took on as our life mission, actually, is to show everybody that they should not be divorced from nature. We really are a part of nature and, uh, and you know, by protecting nature and being a part of it and enjoying it, we are um, whole in so many ways. And th that's really what, uh, 
you know, Earth Day celebration is all about. Let's celebrate the beauty and, and the pristine places. And it's, it's all about nature in so many ways. And Born Wild and the Next Generation is really transporting everybody around the world um, to these beautiful, pristine areas, to the fascination of what is happening in each and every area. And of course, you know, uh, Born Wild, um, Next Generation is all about uh, the, the new life coming up. Um, and, and it's looking at, you know, whales and um, little bear cubs and uh, lion cubs and various different animals around the world. And I think that's really what National Geographic is doing um, at, at Earth Day, is giving us hope in so many ways. Because let's face it, right now, we are all feeling a little bit hopeless and fearful. And to have hope um, is so important because we need that way forward. We need to know that it is okay. We can stop and, and just um, be, but at the same time, stop and understand that there is a new world coming ahead and it's gonna be our decision which world that's gonna be. Is it gonna be the world that um, is, is going to continue for the next millennium or is it going to be the world that we're going to go into one pandemic or one global heating after the other and so that's really what's going to be facing humanity right now but Earth Day and Born Wild Next Generation is all about uh, calming and entertaining and, and showing what there is in nature. I think also, yeah, I think also um, this Earth Day and National Geographic efforts around Born Wild, um, while it's been disruptive, it was going to be a live event. It, um, it couldn't be better timed in many ways because it's making us all reflect on what it means to be Born Wild. And in some ways, we're all now in the wild. We've been forced into our caves like our ancestors three and a half million years ago. Um, we're all now venturing out of our caves, maybe going for a run and retreating back into that self-isolation and, and, uh, and um, you know, in, into that world where we, where we now reflect about this. But what we have to think about is that this is almost like a grand social experiment from which we will, uh, we will either emerge better versions of ourselves or, or fight radically to get back to where we were. And um, I think that as we fight for better, to become better versions of ourselves, um, post this year's Earth Day, um, we need to think also about what, what moral compass we hand on to the next generation, um, whether these sorts of events will become regular, um, and it's all based on, on that, that relationship we have with the planet. Well, very good. Um, I just have one last question about uh, the National Geographic Born Wild Next Generation coming. So it's coming out on Earth Day, April 22nd, right? Which is just in a yeah. few days. Okay. That, that is right. And then it comes um, on, on ABC on the 25th. So it has two releases. And then one last question about this. Is, I guess this is a small question. Um, you've been there to film part of shows like this. What's it like when you watch the show? Is it very different? Do you think to yourself, eh, that's not how it felt or that's not how it was? I mean, or does it, does it ring true when you watch it? 
Well, uh, you know, that's the, that is uh, very different when we are on camera and we're being filmed. And, um, we usually say, no, we look a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, when we take on a film and we're filming out there, we love, eat, and breathe um, the, the place. Uh, we become pretty much a part of the family. Uh, we, we feel like we're either um, part of the Lion Pride or, or a leopard family in so many ways because we do the time. And by doing that time, we really get to understand their behavior and their whole ecosystem. So editing a film like that, um, the story becomes um, everything that we felt, the emotion, what happened to the animal, and, and of course, the, you know, the signs. Uh, and so then, then it really is real in every way for us. Earth Day, uh, Born Wild Next Generation, is going to be a total surprise for us because we haven't seen the edits. And um, we were out there with National Geographic and ABC and Nightline in February. And it was an exciting time because it was a challenge. It was a time where all the new little cubs were being born with five different prides. And of course, we wanted to be able to show them the lines that we had been working with in Kenya, in this Maasai Mara area. And um, over this period, we actually managed to introduce them to five of the prides and each and every one had new little cubs or cubs that were, were about uh, six to eight months old. And so it's going to be interesting to see the final version of the film. We'll be like you, totally in awe. I think from my side, Richard, the, um, uh, there is no version of any film that perfectly uh, captures our lives or, or the life out here. Uh, even live streaming would have a frame around it. Um, but I think what we hope for in the, in the best version of this is, is to encapsulate that and crystallize it and bring it to audiences around the world um, in the most honest way possible. The, just this interview with you, for example, um, none of what we've said here has been canned or rehearsed, and, and we were digging deep and, and talking to you openly and honestly, um, and I think that's the way to embrace life. Um, you, you, you take it at face value and you, and, you, and you give it honesty. And I hope that all of our films deliver honesty, even though there are imperfections within that. Um, the imperfection being that it's an hour long or um, that the edit's in it. Uh, but I, I hope that as we watch our films and as we will watch Earth Day Live, I mean, Earth Day uh, Next Generation, generation um, it will, I think we'll be left with the notion that it was, it was a good representation of, of the way we feel. And that's, that's all we've got. Well, guys, it's been a great experience to talk to you. It feels like a, a wild encounter. I was going to joke with you, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, thank, thank you for all the work you do. And, um, the best way for listeners to follow up now is, I guess, to watch the Board of Wild Next Generation. And what else? How can they find out more about what you're doing and your efforts in particular as well? Well, most certainly they should follow us on National Geographic. Um, a large amount of our effort is going into the Big Cats Initiative at National Geographic again. 
Uh, we have, you know, yellow, we don't have, when we cut ourselves, red blood doesn't come out. Uh, yellow blood, the National Geographic yellow comes out of our veins. Um, and so, yeah, follow us via National Geographic and, uh, and support us as much as you can. Absolutely. And we also have a Facebook page, um, the Derek and Beverly um, Conservation Facebook page. And then both Derek and I have Instagram pages. So it's Derek Gervais Instagram and it's Beverly Gervais Instagram. And that would be the best way for listeners to follow us and we'll be able to share all our conservation efforts through those platforms. The other thing I would add, if you've got a moment, is that um, the biggest... Um, and many people say, how can we help? Uh, and, and we spoke early on about massive poaching surge coming our way. Um, and it's overwhelming in many ways. Um, but all, all great conservation evils um, filter down into three basic issues. And one is ignorance, the other is greed, and the third is necessity. And so we're going into a phase now of great necessity where communities are going to poach and kill out of necessity. They don't know where tomorrow's meal is going to come from. Um, the great number of people that are going out there to kill rhinos and elephants and lions for their bones, uh, because not because they don't think or know it's bad, but because they, they're greedy. Um, and then there's ignorance. And so a whole lot of people think that it's okay to go out and shoot a lion and stick it on their wall for a trophy or, or, to, or to buy a rhino horn or to buy, you know, ivory or to buy pangolins um, and put them in cages with bats and that's where this whole corona thing starts. Um, and so our job, your job, our job collectively is to fight ignorance. Uh, there's little we can do about greed and there's whatever we're all doing collectively about necessity. But we need to go on a campaign to be well informed in this era of false news and, and uh, alternative truths and, uh, and fight ignorance. And so with that, I need to thank you, Richard, for for being a partner of ours in, in uh, you know, conveying the truth. Yeah, like I said, it's been a great experience to talk to both of you, and thank you for all you do, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been excellent, so I appreciate you being here. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard. Have fun with it. All the best. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.